Hello and welcome to Diving Into Diabetes, the podcast where we explore the latest advances and best practices on individualized diabetes care. I'm your host, Dr. Ron Goldenberg, and with me on the program today is Dr. Michael Vallis. He's a health psychologist based in Halifax, uh, Canada. He works as health behavior change consultant and is an associate professor in family medicine at Dalhousie University. And our topic for today is a focus on mental health issues in diabetes uh, with a particular uh, interest on the challenging trio of diabetes distress, psychological insulin resistance, and the fear of hypoglycemia. So a lot of interesting things to discuss with our guests, but first of all, welcome Dr. Vallis and thanks for joining us today. Oh, it's my pleasure. Thank you very much, Dr. Goldenberg. So let's get started and basically, can you tell our listeners what is diabetes distress? This term has been out there for many years, but I have a feeling a lot of clinicians aren't quite aware of what it is and why it's important. Great question. Maybe a, a good way to introduce it is just to encourage the audience. Imagine that you were presenting at, at a diabetes meeting to a number of people living with diabetes, and you asked them if they would call out to you, what words do you use to describe what it's like living with diabetes? And I can pretty much guarantee you, no one's going to say fun, exciting, thrilling, optimistic. People are going to say it's scary, it's a burden, it's difficult. And so this is really the lived experience of the burdens associated with the condition. And as we know so well, glycemia and all of its cascade medical complications really requires ongoing effort and behavior and adherence from the individual living with diabetes. And so the bottom line is that this is actually difficult. People have their own barriers and challenges. Life is difficult enough. And then on top of that, there is the aspects of what it's like to live with diabetes. And a really simple way for us all to think about it is really around the emotional burden of the disease. Uh, the second is the distress associated with all of the tasks of diabetes. Third is what's it like to live in a world of people who do not have diabetes and you're trying to navigate the world and how is it to navigate the medical system? How sensitive are the clinicians to your lived experience? And so diabetes distress has quickly become an important concept for us all to be really aware of because I think the important point around distress is that it's not the one in 50 patients who's going to present it. It's close to every second patient you see in your clinic today will have some signal for diabetes distress. Wow. So uh, I guess what you're saying is we all have busy lives and we have stress alone without diabetes and you throw a complex chronic disease like diabetes in there and it can be uh, rather distressful. So um, if, if almost one in two of our patients have some degree of diabetes distress, are, are there certain patient characteristics that would make it more likely for an individual to have distress around the diagnosis and management of their diabetes? 
I think the characteristics would be, first of all, um, in your awareness of, of your, your patient themselves. So, so um, you know, physicians and diabetes providers don't often think about assessing personality, but you actually assess personality every day. You know the nature of the individuals that you work with. And some of your patients, they do seem to tolerate stress poorly. So this would be the type of patient that you would really want to be really open to with regard to understanding the diabetes distress. But perhaps most importantly is simply to ask and to understand the, the nature of what it's like to incorporate diabetes management into, your, into the patient's life. So how much really interference with their normal lifestyle. So an emotional eater, for instance, someone who would say, you know, I cope with my feelings and my stress by eating at night. Now, I've been told that's not really healthy for me, so I need to stop it. Well, that can cause that person a lot of stress, where the individual who doesn't have that problem wouldn't necessarily be, link it to the same. So if we look at the nature of the disease, self-management tasks, and the nature of the individual. Um, and again, what I love about this kind of a concept is that you don't have to be a psychiatrist or a psychologist in order to make a diagnosis. This is something that really happens through shared decision-making. So if a doctor says, I'd like to understand what it's like to you to live with this disease, that in fact is more than enough for the patient to feel that they're accepted, that they can express their feelings, and then that can lead to the collaboration, just as we collaborate on medical therapies. Excellent. So there's also a lot of literature showing uh, higher rates of depression in diabetes. And how can a clinician differentiate between an all-out clinical diagnosis of depression compared to diabetes distress? And is there overlap between the two? Yeah, yeah, there is there is quite a bit of overlap. One of the strategies that I recommend that I think is quite helpful is that if we're uh, if we identify someone, so I kind of start with the concept of distress as a general concept. And then I, I say, well, what's driving the distress? And so this is where um, this differs a little bit from the diagnosis of depression, which is simply based on symptomatic presentation. If we then say, well, what is driving the distress the patient is presenting? And then try to identify three categories, disease-based. So simply say to your patient, if you didn't have diabetes, would you be experiencing this? And if it's diabetes distress, the patient would say, doctor, if I didn't have diabetes, I wouldn't be in the situation at all. So that's disease-based. That's not depression. Then there's problems of living. So COVID, we can expect that there will be increased distress um, over the next number of years, simply because of all the cascade effects of the pandemic, and then psychopathology distress. I actually find that if you ask these questions of your patient, then they're actually pretty good at saying, no, this is really based on my disease, or no, this is really not so related to my disease. So looking at the drivers of distress um, establishes a relationship in which the clinician can either know that supporting the patient in their management of their diabetes is the best way to manage the distress versus the patient for whom you might want to make a referral to mental health. Thank you. Great practical tips because those of us that treat diabetes don't have a great background in psychology and psychiatry, but I think uh, being aware of the prevalence of diabetes distress and some simple uh, tools of recognizing it can basically help manage our patients with uh, diabetes. So I'm going to change gears a little bit and uh, 
insulin initiation is still a challenge uh, in diabetes management. And there are many patients still reluctant to initiate insulin, especially those with type 2 diabetes. And if anything, it's getting delayed more and more with all these newer classes of antihyperglycemic agents. But there's this uh, fantastic term in the literature called psychological insulin resistance. Can you just describe to our listeners, is this a, a real phenomenon and how do you uh, define it or recognize it? Excellent question. So, you know, the audience is so familiar with physiological insulin resistance, and we understand the pathophysiology that would underlie this. Psychological insulin resistance is based on the perception, the attitudes of the patient. So it requires us then to ask the patient what their perspectives are. This one is critically important when it comes to clinical inertia, because I believe that clinical inertia is actually a relational dynamic. What I mean by that is I think a lot of the providers introduce the idea of intensifying treatment, but the patient isn't excited about the idea. Or in my language, the patient has sort of a pushback and then the doctor stops. So I think inertia isn't the first. I think inertia is the reaction to the patient's attitude. And their attitude is, well, four drugs must mean I'm sicker than if I'm on two drugs. If, if, if you're asking me to go on 80 milligrams, well, well, 40 milligrams, I would be less ill. So these, we call them common sense beliefs. You know, our patient who says, um, you know, I shouldn't be on any medication whatsoever. My goal is to get off all of my medication because some way, way that makes me really healthier if I didn't have this. So there's these attitudes that our patients present. And I find this to be really, really important because if the clinician can look at psychological insulin resistance and say, I wonder what my patient's attitudes are, maybe I could understand what those attitudes are. Do they perceive that, you know, intensifying treatment means that they failed? Do they fear that it's something that is making their disease worse? Um, is it something like just the natural fear of, we call it injection apprehension? So any kind of injectable insulin or other injectable therapies, a significant proportion of our patients will immediately say, oh, doctor, no, 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 I'm afraid of needles. And so it's we understanding those attitudes and then asking permission to work together. Because I, I find that these attitudes are actually really responsive to empathy, understanding, and then education. And we all can do that. We all can acknowledge and empathize. So you sort of, your, your grandmother went on insulin and she died three months later. You think that somehow that insulin contributed to her death. So you're reluctant to accept my recommendation. Well, that makes perfect sense. I really understand that. Can I give you my perspective on this? Can we talk more about this and help you to maybe reframe that? Because especially with type 2 diabetes, you know, I, I love this following expression that, that the person, right, successful behavioral treatment of diabetes in type 2 is when your patient says to you, doctor, I've never been healthier since I've been sick. Somehow I've accepted my disease. I'm following the recommendations and I'm actually in a healthier state once I've actually engaged in self-management with medical therapies than before, but that's an attitude shift. So I really would try to emphasize to the audience, see psychological insulin resistance, not as the end, my patient's not ready, nothing I can do about it. See it as the beginning. I'm expecting people to have these types of attitudes. And if I can understand them, then I can work with the patient. And that's where education becomes so important 
following the empathy. That's a fantastic summary. So I guess if we recognize why a patient has the fear or psychological insulin resistance, we can address that fear. So for example, if they saw their grandmother die from diabetes complications a few months after insulin, clinician can simply explain they probably died because of poorly controlled diabetes for a long time. And maybe if they had gone on insulin earlier, that might have actually uh, prevented the problem. And so if we take their fear and put it in the right uh, uh, perspective. Also, they may have seen relatives or know people who have had severe problems with hypoglycemia and uh, that could lead to a uh, fear. And so again, explaining uh, that severe hypoglycemia is not usually a big problem, especially with newer and modern insulin analogs uh, and address those fears. And we can teach people how to recognize and deal with hypoglycemia. So with that, I'd like to just uh, finish off with the last topic for today, and that is the fear of hypoglycemia as a barrier to diabetes management, particularly in insulin treated uh, patients. Uh, what's your perspective on this? Is this a, a, a real uh, thing that uh, is a barrier and uh, how can we uh, get patients over the fear of hypoglycemia? Yeah, yeah. So to respond to those two, first, it is very, very common um, because the, um, the most sort of uh, basic coping response is what we call escape. Get me out of here. And then escape leads to avoidance. I never want to go back there again. When we talk about the fear of hypoglycemia, I would really like to emphasize that psychologists code stress into two different categories. There's what we would call sort of normal daily hassles or even major life event stresses, the death of a family member. And then there are traumatic stresses. And everybody knows the risk that you know we have of, of post-traumatic stress disorder. But this traumatic stress is very different from the regular stress. And this is why a patient could have one experience on an old insulin a long time ago and still hold on to that fear as if it was yesterday. Because the nature of traumatic types of fears is that they know no time. We call them flashbulb memories. They, they, you know, form this sort of, you know, kind of burned into your brain experience. So it's actually really important for us as clinicians not to underestimate the power of the fear of hypoglycemia because of avoidance. And what I mean by avoidance is the best way to avoid going low is to keep my sugars high. Because, you know, and so start talking to your patient about what is their psychologically safe zone. So when you leave the house in the morning, what's the range of blood glucose that you kind of feel safe about? And people who have developed fear of hypoglycemia will often be safe at a higher range because they know if something happens during the day that they can't predict, they'll still be okay. They won't have a low. And so if we start to embrace the concept of psychologically safe zone, then we can introduce the concept of medically safe zone. And then the doctor, the dietitian, the nurse, the diabetes educator can then work with the patient to bring the psychologically safe zone gradually down to the medically safe zone. This is we call exposure and desensitization. So if I say to you, Dr. Goldenberg, I'm not, I don't feel okay unless my sugar is like, you know, I got to be honest with you, 12. And, and I know you know, between 12 and 16, when I leave the house in the morning, I know I'm not going to have a low. I'm okay with that. 
So we say, okay, that's your psychologically safe zone. We're recommending seven to nine. So can we work together to maybe go from 12 to 16? Maybe would you be willing to shave that to 11 to 15? Okay, now 10 to 14. You see where I'm going with this is a very, very powerful behavioral intervention. My final comment, and this applies really to the psychological insulin resistance and fear of hypoglycemia. Sometimes we think about, oh, if only we had a psychologist, we could send our patients to the psychologist to deal with those issues. But I would like the audience to reflect on who is the better person? Who's more reassuring to the patient? A psychologist who's not a physician or not a medical expert or the medical expert? I find it really interesting here, Dr. Goldenberg, because in my opinion, a clinician, a medical clinician can have more power to intervene upon psychological insulin resistance and fear of hypoglycemia because they become a more credible medical management strategy. So a psychologist might be understanding and supportive, but a, but a quote unquote real doctor will provide the reassurance. So I just wanted to make that kind of plea that as clinicians who are diabetes experts become just comfortable with these concepts then we find that it actually establishes a really effective working relationship between the patient and the provider. Uh, I agree with you 100%. The patient working with either a diabetes nurse educator or an endocrinologist or even their family physician uh, really trusts their uh, opinion and knows that they're aware of their situation and they're probably the best person to advise them about uh, how to manage the fear of hypoglycemia. Uh, also, and I'll uh, finish with this, that uh, now we have medically tools to help our patients get over the fear of hypoglycemia. So continuous glucose monitors with alarms have made a tremendous impact because uh, there's not this unknown fear of when their sugar is going to drop because the alarm will go off and they know okay. that their sugar is dropping. And then if we uh, switch to insulins, uh, for example, the new second generation basal analogs uh, have far less hypoglycemia uh, than older insulins. So the combination of using CGM with insulins that cause less hypoglycemia help us provide tools to get our patients over that psychological uh, barrier. So uh, uh, that was a great discussion. Unfortunately, our time has uh, come to an end. I'll just give a brief recap. Uh, diabetes distress is incredibly common in our patients with diabetes. All healthcare providers should recognize this because you need to recognize it in order to uh, allow patients to get better at managing the distress and understanding that it is a common uh, issue that all our patients deal with. Uh, psychological insulin resistance can be a contributor to clinical uh, inertia. So recognize your patient's fear. And the fear of hypoglycemia is another very important issue that we have to use all the tools in our toolbox uh, in order to help patients get over that uh, fear. So that's it for today's podcast. Thanks for listening to the Diving into Diabetes podcast series. We hope you enjoyed our deep dive into important uh, mental health issues in diabetes. And please don't forget to subscribe to our podcast on iTunes, Spotify, or Google Podcasts, and stay tuned for new releases.